Good morning, everyone. We're rocking and rolling from the West Coast early, and we got the Kaya here waiting for us. Jose Callaso, he is the co-founder and CEO of SlideBeam, slidebeam.com. I'm here with my two brothers, David Marino and Mikey Momola. Good morning, West Coasters. How are you? Good morning. Fantastic. Good morning. Now you guys are going to wake up on this side and be able to watch a whole football game without falling asleep. Yeah, exactly. Except you have to wake up at uh, 4.30 to get ready for this sucker, huh? Uh, yeah, it's great. Yes. Happy to see you guys. Yeah, great to see you. Two good games last night. Well, Kaya, give us a little bit of background on SlideBeam. Uh, uh, yeah, so we, we're a um, uh, toolkit for startups. So we we went through the hoops ourselves. I'm, I'm Costa Rican, so I'm a, sort of like an immigrant uh, entrepreneur that had to kind of build a network from scratch in the last 10 years or so. Um, so we we decided to build this platform that helps entrepreneurs sort of navigate this early stage from from creating a pitch deck to to finding investors to working with their financials. So we're we're trying to kind of teach them from what we had to go through when we didn't have these tools. And you know, to that matter, uh, I was just thinking I'm on the board of MediaKits.com, and you know, the personal brand of an entrepreneur, uh, as I self aggrandize myself here uh is so important do you have something like mediakits.com in your toolkit or is that something that would be a supplementary value to your toolkit yeah a, a little bit uh probably the the biggest kind of our biggest media presence is on youtube these days um so we a little bit by accident we stumbled upon this uh this new media uh that started as a marketing channel for us but now it's become sort of like the main reason where people know us, uh, hitting on on 300k subscribers, um, and it's 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 pretty cool. Like we 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 get to hear these stories of entrepreneurs that you know have been consuming the content for a couple of years, maybe became a customer, maybe not, but uh, their company succeeded because of it. So that's that's nice to hear. Awesome, okay, that's awesome, and uh, congrats on the success so far. And, and and your story resonates with me because oftentimes. I say I didn't grow up with a platinum Rolodex. I know that my two buddies here didn't grow up with a platinum Rolodex either. And a lot of the folks we made along the journey were just folks that you kind of gathered and collected and, you know, stored for later and tried to figure out. So I, I get I get the journey. Um, what are some of the more common uh, pain points for startups and, and, and how do your tools help? entrepreneurs navigate them because it's pretty cool you guys are like literally a startup for startups <laughs> yeah yeah and it's it's weird and on the startup for startups the weird part of it is you you can't be that unless you have some credibility like unless you've, you've been through some of this stuff so that people believe you right so we couldn't be that from the start uh and we weren't we we started the the product and, this, and the company as a as a presentation specific product uh presentation platform that could be used for anything now we as as we sort of evolved in our audience, now we can sort of teach them from that ex, from that experience, and it was a bit of a pivot in our company. Um, what was your other question? Sorry. Oh, what what, uh, what are some of the more more difficulties for startups in in that use your tools, and how do the tools help them navigate those those difficulties? Yeah, so uh, I, I think that I mean finding investors is sort of like this very foreign thing that that entrepreneurs have to go through. Uh, it's talking to some to a profile of person that you've probably never spoken to before. Uh, it's understanding how to pitch them, what are they interested in, what do they want to hear, and there's a lot of stuff online about this um, that's that I think creates a lot of confusion. For example, I, I remember, and this was our own experience. I remember when we were starting the company, this company called Yo 
raised a couple million dollars in, in funding. And yo, the only thing you could do with this app, yo, was send yo texts to somebody else. Like you couldn't even write a text, just yo, uh, to your peers. Um, Nick and Jersey. that's that's a that's a south philly that's not a jersey (laughs) so for us it was very confusing it's like what so this app yo just raised two million dollars why like if they can raise two million dollars with just doing that we we should be able to raise money as well and and you hear that a lot with companies that are not necessarily venture backable or that don't have a story that's venture backable uh and entrepreneurs are sort of confused because of because of seeing the news and seeing how big rounds are and just not understanding how venture capital works. Kai, I know as a, a startup for startups, you help uh, companies by assisting them with a, a powerful deck and financial model. And because of your background in graphic design and digital animation and filmmaking, you yourself are a great storyteller. What is the importance for our listeners the, of being a great storyteller? We often say people buy on emotion, but what's the importance of being a great storyteller in your deck to help your potential investors understand? Um, so, I mean, some stuff, I mean, a very specific example of that. So the way navigating through an investor works is, you know, you'll, you'll hopefully get an intro to a potential investor and what they'll ask is, Hey, can you send me your pitch deck? So that's before they give you a call. That's before they give you a meeting. Um, and what you'll have to do is send over some slides. So this presentation is really the only, they're going to make a decision to whether give you a meeting or not based on this presentation. Um, so there are some stats about this. Because uh, we, we track investor views on DEX. So we understand a little bit of how it works. For example, we know that investors will spend about three, four, maybe even five minutes looking at the slides. And that's it. They won't spend 15 minutes looking at this deck or reading this document. So if the document doesn't compress the company's story into, into a th- uh, deck that you can read in three, four minutes, then you sort of lose them. So you have to know how to compress that story. It's also about you know, choosing the right slides so that they don't skip them through or not filling them in with too much content so that they get bored and they turn out of the deck. Um, like it's a retention thing, just like, like a bounce rate thing that you would measure on your website. Um, so that's kind of like the analytical part of a story. Uh, beyond that, I think that investors do connect a little bit with the founder story and what they've achieved. And if you can just tell that story in a way that's exciting, in a way that drives emotion, I think that that does make a difference. It's not the only reason, obviously there needs to be a good business behind it, but it does help. And when you, you know, also track different things uh, so that we can optimize profitability um, and more importantly with startups, uh, we track things so that we can stay in business. I always say the number one thing a startup should be concerned about is just staying in business. You're a proof of that. Uh, when you had founded in 2014, I'm sure staying in business was a crucial or critical business issue for you every single day for years and years. Um, what types of things have you learned through doing so and working with so many startups? What should we be tracking to make sure that we stay in business so that we could evolve? Um, yeah, so I mean, the very, the very basic part is not running out of money. And then your job as a CEO, which has a bunch of caveats and a bunch of really exciting stuff the, the most basic thing that you have to do is not running out of money right so that's a that's a question of a spreadsheet that you know that lets you understand when you can hire if you need to raise money and also if you can raise money i've seen companies go out of business because they believed that they could raise their next round and they weren't really ready for it um it, it happened to us right at some point we we were uh, up for raising our series a and we sort of had to make that call like do we 
continue going as we are, where we have six months of runway, assuming that we will raise our Series A within the next six months, or do we you know, do we change something to extend that runway or or to become profitable? And you know, companies have to have to go through this, and it is and it depends on the CEO, the ability to run out. Of, I mean, the the ability to raise money or the capacity to not run out of money. Kai, you guys are on the verge of launching a new offering. Would love for you to kind of highlight that and tell us a little bit about it. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, uh, it's you know, it's been a, it's been a, the, the whole YouTube thing has been really exciting for us. And what we've discovered is that we suddenly have founders of companies that are much larger than ours, than ours, which is pretty crazy to me. Uh, a guy came up with came up with the other day. Uh, he has a hundred employees. Uh, millions of dollars in or tens of millions of dollars in run rate and i'm like why would you watch my videos like i don't obviously i don't target you what can i teach you you can teach me stuff um but they still found our content interesting they still found our our stories interesting our storytelling stuff um so we figured that well if we have this audience of entrepreneurs what else do they need what what problem do they have so that's how we came up with with recurring it was a problem that we were struggling ourselves Full transparency, we 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 spend probably thirty, sometimes fifty thousand dollars a month on subscriptions to software, like different platforms that we use for emailing and for productivity and, and whatnot. Um, and at this point, we were thirty three people in the company. My managers have their own cards that they can use to buy software, uh, and if it's not too expensive, they don't even need to ask anyone at, at the ops team. And very often, we'll find tools that are duplicated or tools that got abandoned uh, and nobody's using. So that this was a problem that we had. Uh, and we try to find a tool to solve it and we couldn't find one. So we figured, well, we're in a great position to build one ourselves. So we built this product called Recurring um, to help founders track that. Congratulations. Good luck with that. I, I want to go back to, to Slidebean for a second. You know, when it, my question is, when in the life cycle of a company should they be looking to Slidebean, the old adage or, or uh, thought that, you know, by the time you feel thirsty, your body's already dehydrated. A lot of times companies don't realize until what, so when should they be realizing it before they're already dehydrated? I, I think that we, we're very uh, direct on our value prop, which is finding investors or pitching investors uh, is what we do best. Uh, I, I hope people are coming up with our content long before that, long before they need that. Uh, and that's going to be through YouTube and they don't need to be a customer yet. They're, they're probably a lead. Uh, as a subscriber to YouTube or as a consumer or content. Um, but it, it is when they start this fundraising process, when they're considering raising money. Uh, raising money it takes a long time. Uh, founders think that they can get that done in a month, when in, in reality, it's going to take about six months. Um, you know, so six months before they run out of money, if their intention is to fund the company with investors, that's, yeah, that's the spot. Last question real quick, uh, Kaya. I know why they call you Kaya, uh, but why slide me? So Kaya comes short is short for my last name. Uh, funny story, uh, my dad used to be a professional soccer player. Uh, he used to play in the Bundesliga. So a lot of people know me because of my last name. I had to kind of come up with my own version of it, so I shortened it, and it became sort of like my nickname for everybody. Um, so that's that's the last name story or the nickname story. And the company. So we 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 started as a presentation platform. So there's slides, and then we're from Costa Rica. So we're we're coffee lovers. Our all three co-founders are coffee lovers. So we figured, well, we should plug something in. And honestly, honestly, the .com domain was available. So that's that's <laughs> that's what I was trying to get at. The, re the real questions, the real answers here with the incredible CEO and co-founder of Slidebean, slidebean.com. 
Jose Kaya Kayaso. Thank you so much for joining us on Office Hours. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. Thanks, Jose. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Kaya. All right. Next up, Peter Mahoney, founder and CEO of Plana. Hey, good morning, Peter. How are you? Great, great. Good morning. Great to see you, David. Uh, great to see you. And I'm really excited about your new book, The Next CMO. This is a guide to operational marketing excellence, the second edition. Um, and the reason I'm so excited about it is, especially in the realm of marketing, it's great to see someone that's pragmatic. You know, I excuse my language, but I haven't seen as much bullshit in marketing since they created digital marketing, you know, since I was a sports agent trying to sell TV time and talk about how many households or viewers, you know, I still see it in the TV world, the TV show, we got 80 million viewers. No, you have 80 million homes that this thing's pumped into, but you might have eight viewers. Uh, but it's even worse now in the digital realm, uh, the manipulation, the confusion. And so it's nice that you have this, you know, great book, an operational marketing uh, book that allows us to have a pragmatic uh, guide in which we can really construct or, or articulate quantitative value. What are some of the lessons? I know this is a second edition. What are some of the lessons that you see with this new generation of marketing leaders uh, that we should be focusing in on instead of buying into, excuse my language one more time, the bullshit? It's a great point. And David, one thing that I find is that marketers are, are really pretty significantly uh, skewed toward this idea of promoting stuff. Right. And, and interestingly, especially when you're making your own plans and working with your own executive teams, it's really important to actually tell the truth. And, and, and there's this fundamental thing that marketers sometimes get caught up in their own BS, as you say. Well, you don't quite say it that way. Right. But <laughs> they, they get caught up in, and in their spin. And the reality is you actually have to tell the truth. And I tell people you have to operate more like a scientist than a marketer in, in marketing these days which means it's like the scientific method. I, I didn't go to school to be a marketer. I actually grew to, went to school to be a physicist. Uh, and so what, what do you do? You apply the scientific method to everything, right? You, you develop a thesis and the thesis is that, hey, I'm going uh, I'm, I'm to run this campaign and I'm, I'm going to get this kind of result. And then you run a series of experiments uh, and you measure the data. And if the data says that the results aren't very good, then you say the results aren't very good. And either we're going to change something or we're going to stop. And marketers don't have that mentality all the time. So that was one of the big fundamental things I learned. Man, that, that is Wait, hold really... on, Dave Marino. Sorry. It's okay to smile, brother. Let's I've see. been smiling all morning. You, 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 it's like, was it the scientific side uh, that got you all uh, serious? <laughs> no, it, got me, it just got me thinking. We watched the replay. You haven't smiled once. That's not true. <laughs> Uh, it, it got me thinking. I had a question more about the podcast and 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 and, and how to integrate that with the book. But I'm going to save that question for the for the next round. About I, I'm just curious your journey from from going to school for a physicist to be a physicist to being a CMO. It just automatically gives me vibes of a book that we all love, uh, Surrender Experiment. But we'd love to know more about the journey of how how that happened. Well, uh, it was an accident, uh, and that's usually how those things happen, right? Yeah. And so he, he, here's what happened. I literally was born into a family of scientists. Uh, my first home when I was born was on an MIT campus. Uh, my dad was a PhD student. I was his fourth kid, and he was still living on campus. He had two more after he finally moved off. 
so I was in this family destined to be a scientist. My two older brothers are PhD scientists. My dad was a PhD scientist. Uh, and But I knew that I didn't want to be a physicist when I went to school. I have a bachelor's in physics, which is like a bachelor's in college, right? It, it, it's actually pretty useless, frankly. Uh, it's like art history, right? Uh, and not to offend all the art history majors out there. Uh, but uh, leaving uh, leaving uh, college, I told people, people said, hey, what are you going to do with that degree? I said, I don't know. All I know is I'm never going to sell anything because that was like the worst thing in the world to me. It was like the antithesis of science. Uh, so what do I do? I, I get a, a, a call from IBM who's looking for technical people in their uh, in, in sort of their technical pre-sales roles like a systems engineer. So I go and I do a bunch of interviews and then literally along the way, they say, hey, we think you'd actually work out well in marketing. I go, all right, I, I have no idea what it was. Uh, it turns out that when IBM says marketing, they actually mean sales. Uh, so I got bamboozled into a sales job, uh, but it turned out to be great for me. Uh, flash forward about uh, six years later, I, I was doing really well in my early career. Never, Still never had a job otherwise, uh, besides selling or partnering. And, uh, and I had a, 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 a very evolved CEO who came to me and said, hey, we're building a new division. Do you want to run marketing for it? And that's how it started. That's how I got my first job in marketing. It was actually running marketing for a division of a public company. Who knew? That's, inc that's <laughs> incredible. I want to break that down formulaically. Uh, good morning, Peter. Hey, so good morning, Mike. Good morning. In, in sales and marketing, you know, it's always been my understanding that when you when you speak with people and when I talk to other uh, younger entrepreneurs about is, you know, what the potential customer or consumer is asking themselves, even subconsciously, I think often they don't realize it, is do I like this person? Do I trust this person? Are they competent? And very often we, we have that, that that shifted in our minds. You know, if, in terms of a formula, how much of that do you agree with it, it, when people are making a decision? Yes, I'm going to go with Peter or IBM or this company or other based on do I like this person? Do I trust this person? Are they competent? Well, absolutely. Those are all super important. And the extension of that is what you ascribe to the brand that they support. So that that's about a big part of what brand is, obviously. Now, uh, and, and if you think about it, you as a frontline professional, whether it's a sales professional or a marketing professional or both, are an expression, an extension of the brand that you're representing. And that's why cultural fit and that's why brand alignment is, is so important when you're hiring, because you're absolutely right, Mike, that experience that you have with, with a sales professional, it is a reflection and people will definitely buy or not buy uh, or certainly make decisions one way or another incrementally based on exactly that experience that they have uh, around the relationship with the, the sales professional. You know, utilizing AI is part of your software company uh, with Plana that you work with. Um, your podcast, The Next CMO, uh, one of the things, the nice things about being older is that you understand speed. And one of the issues with speed is that in marketing, when things weren't changing as quickly, we had time to gather and test uh, those of us that lived in radical humility, at least ignorant humility of marketing saying, all right, you know, we, we don't know exactly what's going on, like you said, to be honest, but we have time. We don't have time today uh, that the data that we receive sometime, especially in the social media side of things, can change daily and we can't plan quick enough. Uh, to access or assess the data that we've received 
because by the time we receive the data, go through the systematic changes that are necessary in marketing and then execute on them, the entire playing field has changed again. Uh, I know your platform helps to create a quicker mechanism into, in order to make those marketing decisions. I know you talk about that on in your podcast as well. How important is the speed in which we change our mind as marketers? Well, obviously, speed is super important, David, but it has to be done in a, a context of, of some framework for coherence. So what you don't want to do is just spin around madly and just keep doing different things all the time. You say, oh, wow, there's something shiny over there, something shiny over there. You're going to just it will add up to nothing. So the most important thing is to have a framework of a plan, and that can be a series of high-level business goals, high-level campaign constructs. Within those campaign constructs, you're going to see a lot of variability in performance, and you can tune the performance lots of different ways. Some of it is based on what the offer is. Some of it is based on the creative, the audience. Sometimes the whole medium is different for some reason because the world is changing so fast. But you, you need to make all of those optima optimizations in the context of a broader plan and what I'm trying to achieve. And that's the thing a lot of people miss. It, what they do is they, they just try going thing to thing to chase the next exciting uh, opportunity. All fine as long as you keep in context that I'm moving forward toward a set of business goals, whether it's I want to grow customers, I want to add revenue or pipeline, or I want to in increase the value of my brand. You got to make sure that you're still whatever you're doing and trying to improve uh, toward is in service of those overall goals. Nice. Peter, why, why should companies look into automating marketing leadership? What are the benefits of that? Obviously, it's it's what your, your venture-backed software company, Planet, does. Um, we would love to hear from you why that works and uh, why folks should look into implementing this this, this uh, software. Sure. Thanks, David. And and by the way, I, I built this out of my own personal pain. Uh, I, I was a I'm what I call a recovering CMO. I spent many years doing this. I was the most recently the CMO of about a $2 billion software company uh, and that, that had done 100 acquisitions. Uh, and, uh, and what I found all the time is that, uh, is that most CMOs don't have a good handle on uh, what their team is doing, spending the resources, both financial and human resources, to help them achieve their goals. And if they can align their team more effectively, they're going to outmarket and they're going to beat their competition. So it's about being more effective. Uh, and so that that's why people come to us. And, and I think of what we're trying to do is ultimately build the nav system for marketing. Uh, so if, if you think about back when when David and I were growing up, uh, if you went if you wanted a trip to Chicago, you called AAA and you got a trip tick. You remember those, David? Uh, oh, yeah. And it was basically a stack of paper maps. And right? we have other guides to help in case. Yeah, so it's it's a stack of paper maps that they literally hit with a highlighter and said, follow that list. These days, you, you pick a nav system. What's your what's your business goal? I want to get to Chicago. What's my strategy? I want to use the, the highways or I want to take the scenic route. And then your nav system guides you along the way while you're driving and says, great, you're, you're ahead of pace or there's rain coming up, uh, there's traffic or your tire pressure is low. And that's fundamentally what we're trying to do. Uh, in, in the signals that we're picking up from the from the the marketing organization are are you achieving your goals are you spending your money appropriately are the campaigns you're running delivering what you want and are all the things in your plan the things that 
you should expect to have in a plan based on your goals and strategies. Fantastic advice. Congratulations. And Peter, before we go, if you could, please tell our audience where they can find more about Plana and your new book and everything you'd like them to know about you. Well, great. Thanks, Mike. And thanks for the opportunity. Uh, they can go yeah. to Plana.com and it's P-L-A-N-N-U-H, pronounced like planner with a Boston accent. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then right at the top there, they, actually, they can actually get a free copy of our book from our website. Um, it, it, there's a banner at the top that they can uh, go to get it. So uh, thanks again for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. We look forward to having you back. <clears throat> look forward to uh, your podcast as well. So congratulations on that. Excellent job. Just a wealth of knowledge, and we appreciate you adding to it here on Office Hours. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. All right. We got Philly. We got New Jersey. We got Boston. All types of different. California. And uh, San Jose, Costa Rica. Come on. Can't leave that one out. Costa Rica. And now we have the double H coming on. Heather Hansen, coach, author, speaker, and, of course, the host of the Elegant Warrior podcast. Her book is on Amazon and you can check her out at view.flowdesk.com. What a pleasure it is to have you, Heather, here on Office Hours. I'm so excited to join you guys. I was just watching your great conversation with Mike and uh, excited to dive in. Oh, we're excited to have you. And especially with your new book release, uh, you, you just uh, are, are a wealth as well of knowledge and I love, I love the title. Um, it was released in May, Advocate to Win, 10 Tools to Ask for What You Want and Get It. I'm going to start off, and you got, unfortunately, three uh, recovering lawyers here. What, one still, <laughs> he's still a, a real lawyer. Um, and, you know, it's amazing because I've started my career in 1992 with a company called Westlaw, uh, which set my finances in another direct trajectory because the internet ended up not being as bad as my mom said. And I, I guess she was wrong that I should be a real lawyer because uh, the internet has done me really well. Um, just like NFTs has done Mikey really well. Uh, but it's amazing because you would think lawyers especially would know how to ask. And I'm on a huge campaign to teach people to ask. And understanding ask is so important, not just for what we want, but ask so that we can get alignment, synergy, supplementary value, asking, 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 asking would have been the savior when I lost $100 million. I just didn't ask. I didn't ask for help. I didn't ask anyone. Why do you think it is, as you say, ask for what you want? People don't ask for what they want. Well, and, and you're so right. I think that there's risk involved with asking. There's a fear that you're not going to get what you want. There's a fear that you're going to look like a fool. There's a fear that you're going to be disliked because you asked. And there's also this sense, especially for women, guys, that they're asking by implication. You know, if I do a really good job at work, that's enough. I don't have to verbally open my mouth and ask for a raise. Or if I give my, if I do the laundry tonight, I don't have to verbally open my mouth and get my partner to do it tomorrow. And so I think that all of those things combined that make people not only reluctant to ask, but don't realize that they have to. And a big part of what I do with my clients is teaching them that they have to actually open their mouths and ask the person who can give them the thing that they want. Heather, I love that. And I think uh, your story resonates with me, particularly as, as a trial attorney, because uh, I tell folks all the time, I just had a, a meeting yesterday and a client of mine asked me, you know, you're so young, you've accomplished so much. What do you attribute it to? 
And one of the things I said without even thinking about it is being a trial attorney it makes you fearless, right? And the cool thing about being a trial attorney is you have this opportunity to literally, while within the confines of court, depending on how, you know, liberal judges to, to, to voir dire everybody and kind of find out how they think, right? Now I know how they think. Let me see, figure out how I can persuade them on, on, on what I feel. Um, so one of the things that I say being a trial attorney does gives you, it gives you a rational confidence, right? Because if you don't have a rational confidence, you'll never be successful. So what are those, those translators from your, your world as a trial attorney to literally, you know, getting what you want? There's so many things that you just said there, David, that apply to, and especially the tools in the book. The first thing is perspective, right? Everybody has a different perspective. And our jobs as trial attorneys is to change the jury's perspective. When my trial attorney work was defending doctors in medical malpractice cases, every single person on a jury is a patient. They see the case and the world through a patient's perspective. And my job is to change that. And in doing so, I have to see their perspective first. Well, you guys have your jury every day. David, it's not just in your courtroom. It's the clients that you might want to bring on. It's the people that you want to sell your products to. It's the leaders that you want to persuade. If you're a leader, it's the team members that you want to persuade. And seeing things from their perspective helps you to change it when you want to. And the other thing about confidence, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I always say that trial attorney work, trying cases, is similar to politics and sports, which I know you guys know those worlds, because they are a zero-sum game. There is a winner and there is a loser, and it is very public. And that has made me definitely confident and more open to risks. And I think that those two things can come together to make you a very strong advocate. But so much of it is first seeing things through the other person's perspective. You know, David, you wrote the book, um, Compassionate Capitalism. Compassion, my definition of it, is one of the five C's of an advocate. It is the foundation of what you must do in order to advocate. And the way that I define it is seeing things through another person's perspective and then putting that into action. So these are tools that I learned in the courtroom that apply to everyone because we all have our juries. I, I love that. And I completely agree, Heather. And, you know, you and I would, would have been on opposite sides of the courtroom. I did plaintiff's uh, personal injury and medical malpractice work for a long time. Still have a hand in some of that in, in helping people get to where they need to be and and uh, just enjoyed that process so much in, in helping jurors get to where they, they needed to be in, in the minds of, our, of us or, or you or whoever it might have been. And I think that what you just said is, is so important um, with regard to perspective. And it, it brings me back to Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won or lost before it's ever fought. And how much of that goes into uh, advocating effectively, not only knowing your audience, but being prepared, intimately knowing who the jurors might be, depending on how well you can know that or who your audience might be, so that you can effectively persuade them. It's 90% of winning, right? I always, that's one thing I took very seriously in the courtroom. I wanted to be the most prepared attorney in the courtroom because that's something you could control as well. But the interesting thing about knowing others' perspective is the, the viewers now here, they have an advantage that we as trial attorneys did not have. As you pointed out, David, we do voir dire, that's jury selection. It's our opportunity to ask the jurors about their perspective, right? So we get to know where they're from, what they do, what they like. And that's a short period of time. And then during the trial, you don't get to ask them, am I making sense? Do you understand? What other? What else do you want to know? You know, one of my many jobs is an anchor at the Law and Crime Network. 
I love watching the trials where the jurors get to ask questions. There are some jurisdictions where that's an opportunity. It was never the case where I practiced because you actually get to hear from them. In the courtroom, we don't. But in business, you do. And so part of that preparation, Mike, is asking questions. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you want to see? One of my favorite questions I got from Judge Rosemary Aquilina. She was the judge in the Larry Nasser case. He was the doctor accused of molesting all of those young gymnasts. And I was anchoring during that hearing. So I watched her every day. And at the beginning, only a few women intended to come forward and tell their stories. And most of them didn't want to use their names or faces. By the end, over 100 women came forward and told their stories in front of the camera. And I attributed that completely to one question that Judge Rosemary Aquilina asked each one of those women when they stood up. She didn't say, what happened to you? She didn't say, why are we here? She didn't say, tell me what I need to know. She said, tell me what you want me to know. And every one of them told her something different. Some talked about how it impacted their work. Some talked about how it impacted their parents. Some talked about how it impacted their personal relationships. But they told her what they wanted her to know. And Mike, I think a big part of that preparation is being willing to ask that question and then use the answer to see things from that person's perspective. And if you have to, change that perspective. You know, Heather, one of the other things that's interesting in the law and in business is that the assumptive knowledge uh, is a huge problem, whether you're not prepared or not. And in fact, you know, unfortunately in my biggest uh, litigation and had a malpractice uh, of, you know, my own attorney not being capable of articulating the, that preparation. And I know even within the context of Flowdesk uh, that, we may know everything about what we want to present. We know, may know everything about the jurors that have been selected through Wadir. We may have the greatest arguments in the war, world or the greatest presentation pitch, and, and I see it all the time, the greatest company. Yeah. But if you are incapable of articulating the arguments, the value, your message, the stories, and the lessons, it's a, a tragedy. And it happens every day in business. And it happens most frequently in emails. Oh my gosh. And I spend an extraordinary amount of time doing what Flowdesk has done. And when I found out about Flowdesk being able to, you know, utilize the methodology that best suits the articulation of what we know, um, how has that, you know, uh, been utilized in your advocate to win, but also in your business Flowdesk? So my business isn't Flowdesk. I think you got that from the email that I sent oh. to Nick yesterday. Flowdesk nice. is a, a website that is I'm using for my private podcast. My oh, business okay, is solely my business is solely focused on giving people the tools to advocate for themselves. But David, you make a really good point there because I always say when you communicate, you share perspectives. Mm -hmm. When you advocate, you change them. And there is a major difference between the two. And leaders have to learn to advocate. It's not enough to just be prepared. You have to be able to communicate that preparation in a certain way. And that involves things like body language, tone of voice, listening, and in big part, large part, overcoming the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge happens all the time in, in our cases. And you know, you guys have mentioned that you've been had some experience with medical malpractice. If the opposing attorney gets up and starts talking about osteomyelitis, I know I'm in good shape. 
because I'm going to talk about bone infection. And the jurors are immediately going to be like, I understand that lady. She talks to me in a way that I understand. And therefore, all of my preparation won't be for naught. So you really have to work on overcoming the curse of knowledge with every word you say. What Words are one of the 10 tools of an advocate. I am a little bit obsessed with words. I look at the root of the word. What does it really mean? What's the magic in this word? And so I think that all the preparation that you do can fall flat if you're not using compassion, seeing things from the other's perspective, using your body language, using your tone of voice, listening to what they say and putting all of that together. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Dave, go ahead. No, go ahead, Dave. No, I'm smiling to myself, even though Dave says that I don't smile as much, because I'm thinking <laughs> about experiences in my life that have been unique through this journey called law, right? And the unique perspective of being a prosecutor in a grand jury, which early in my career I was a prosecutor, and you were talking about jurors asking questions and how that is a helpful exercise. But I'm thinking about all the times where, so in the grand jury, the, the grand jurors at the end of the presentation, they have questions. And before you get that question to ask the witness, you as the prosecutor need to screen to find out if it's appropriate and it's relevant, right? So I can remember all the times I'll hear the question, I'll just look back at them like, I'm not gonna ask that. So <laughs> the, the, the point I'm making is you never know what folks will pick up on. And, and, and it goes to the quality of the overall presentation, right? Because folks can get distracted by the smallest things. Um, how, has, how have you viewed that? Has that been your same experience? Oh my gosh, it cracks me up because I tell this story often. You know, I work a lot with female leaders and I tell this, this story often that we tried a two week case and it was multiple defendants, very complicated medicine. All of the other defendants were represented by men. So there were five male attorneys and myself. And at the end of the case, the defense won and the jury wanted to talk to the attorneys. So we went in to talk to the attorneys and they had questions about the case. And then the question they had for me is, why do you wear your hair up every day? Yeah. And it's, but it's such, you know, and I, I don't, I'm not offended by that. You know, like some people, I just think it's interesting the things that they're paying attention to. And it reminds me that they're human. And so, of course, they're going to look at what people are wearing and how they wear their hair and wonder about these things. And rather than taking offense at that, I work to use all of those differences that I have to my advantage. Not necessarily the hair, but things like tone of voice. That's a huge one. And so, yes, you, you never know what someone's going to grab onto. But the more experience that you have asking what they've grabbed onto, seeing those questions, David, the better you get at understanding, well, this perspective might be out there. I should speak to that perspective as well. Heather, I use my hair uh, as an advantage. I tell people all the time, grass doesn't grow on a busy street. So they, they, <laughs> they think I'm smarter. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, there, I agree. You know, we, we talk yeah. about the, the only thing you need to be successful in, in any business are three things. And it's uh, preparation, 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 whether it's in law, business or whatever it might be. Right. And I want to go back to what what you just said is so interesting to me because I've experienced it, too, in terms of the questions that people come up with. And they are really human questions uh, at their essence. With regard to the preparation and, and being an effective advocate, one of the things we used to do, and I'm sure you did too, is something called mock trials. And for, and for our listeners who don't know what that is, basically, we would try the case, run through it with uh, people who would come in and we'd pay them as potential jurors, 12 people, and run through the case and then separate them, six in one room, six in another room, and watch them deliberate. 
and the questions that they had were mind-boggling. Here you are, you've prepared a case for two or three years, and you never thought of this, 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 or this. How important is that in, in life and law and business to do that as a form of effective preparation for successful advocacy? I think it's an enormous form of preparation and it can be dangerous, right? Because every yeah. jury is different. And so I have had cases that have ended in mistrials, which means the jury can't come to a conclusion. And then the next trial, and then you talk to them and they have certain things. And so you sort of uh, point your focus at focus. those things. And the next trial, the jury is a little bit different, but it does give you some insight into what you're doing right, right and what you're doing wrong. I think for me, the most important part of preparation for a trial in the courtroom, or if I'm pitching my coaching services to a huge corporation, is going through what I call the win-lose weird process. I like to look at all the ways I could win, but then I like to look at all the ways I could lose as if I'm arguing for the other side. And I look at each piece of, of evidence. How will the other side use this evidence to their advantage? I did this so well that sometimes my clients would call me Chicken Little because I'd be like, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? But that preparation, it's almost like doing a postmortem. You know, how could we lose? How could we fail? How could we die here? And I think that that preparation in conjunction with getting as much as you can about the perspective of your jurors is going to allow you to take all of the evidence or the information that you talked about, David Meltzer, and put it together in a way that's going to be the most effective advocacy. What you do with, no pun intended, such elegance and uh, utilizing these tools as an advocate to win uh, is essential, not just in the courtroom, but in business and in life. And in order to do so, you got to ask for what you want and actually get it by articulating it quite elegantly which you do with your Advocate of Elegance, your newsletter, as well as your podcast, coaching, keynote speaking, inspiring others to inspire others. Go check it out. It's a, a book you do not want to miss. Came out in May, Advocate to Win. Be a winner. Ask for help. Thank you, Heather Hansen. You fit into this crowd. We have to have you back perfectly. So thank you. I would love it. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thank Thanks, Heather. Bye-bye. She's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Oh my goodness, that she fits right in. But we had we probably could have asked her questions for like six hours with our background. You know, yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. we get the rocket scientists on us and, and we have the blank looks like uh what do we <laughs> what do we ask this guy? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but see, oh Dave laughed. That must have been funny. That's good. Look at that beautiful <laughs> smile, man. See the kind of just did too. Like you got the nicest smile like your mom, man. You gotta use that thing more often. It matches your shirt too, it's perfect. Thank you. Uh, thank God. It Wise trips. I need a sponsor. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Smile bright with Dave Marino here on Office Hours. All right, boys, it's takeaway for the day. Don't forget, you boys are out here in California. Why are you out here? Office Hours with David Meltzer. Premiere, premiere tonight. Bloomberg Season premiere, Bloomberg TV, Amazon Prime globally. The first of 12 amazing episodes over the next three months. Don't miss it, guys. It's going to be yeah, incredible. We've got Sadhguru, Danica Patrick, many, many, many. We've got 75 of the biggest names, billionaires, millionaires, entrepreneurs. If you want to learn about business from people who carry the spirit of excellence with some great hosts like Mike Mamula and David Marino, and luckily myself, it's probably the best project that I've ever worked on with the nicest and most interesting and educational people. Uh, anyway, Takeaway for the day, who's going to go first? I'll go first. Yeah, I'll I jump have... on it if you go ahead. You got it, Dave? <laughs> Good. Yeah, I love I've, it. I've got a simple one today. Knowledge <laughs> is power. This is something that we've heard since we were four, five, six years old. I think that was one of the schoolhouse rock le lessons. Uh, but if you, if you, right? Yeah. 
shout out to me for using Schoolhouse Rock in a reference, but yeah, uh, <laughs> the bill. Exactly. It's my favorite. You, you gotta look that bill, man. But <laughs> all of our guests today, in some way, shape, or form, I mean, we talk about uh, Kaya and his startup Slidebeam. Um, you know, the knowledge that they amassed in going through their journey and how they're putting it back out there via these tools to help startups. I mean, obviously, Peter, right, looking at marketing from a perspective of it is a scientific equation based on the data that you receive. And then obviously with, with Heather uh, being, a, you know, be a reformed trial attorney, um, looking at how to be persuasive via the information you amass about your target. So for me, it's knowledge is power. It's something that translates, obviously, to any industry. Yeah, and I'll just build on that a bit. It's, you know, people say luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And, and there really is a formula to success. And if you don't know it, you need to surround yourself with people like the guests we had on today who can teach it to you. You look at Peter, you know, applying the laws of physics to marketing and Kaya, what he's doing, and Heather, just with everything she said, there really is a right way to work through this scientifically, mathematically, formulaically to figure it out. Just because you have a great product or a great service doesn't mean that you know how to get it from the beginning up to the end the way that it needs to. You need to know that formula or have the people around you that can help you figure it out. And interrelated to both of you, those are great takeaways for everyone to utilize. For me, it was you need to ask the right questions. The form uh, and execution of true leadership is intelligent following. Uh, to be an intelligent follower, you need to know and ask the right questions and uh, know when not to ask uh, the questions. I think David brought that up, uh, which reminds me, you know, I see it in sales all the time. You know, you ask one too many questions. You had you had the jury, then you lost the jury. You had the sale, you lost the sale. So you need to know when to stop asking questions, but also how to ask and be prepared is the only way uh, to ask the right questions. Ask, ask, ask. Whether you're Kaya, Peter, or Heather, it's incredible. We got to be more interested than interesting. All right, boys, we are going on Clubhouse in 13 minutes. We have a webinar with over 50,000 people registered. I've done it for over 21 years. It's Speaking of asking questions is B-Y-O-Q. Bring your own questions. I'll bring the answers. One of the best hot seat coaches in the world. I'm hoping to see both of you on there because nobody likes to ask the first question. And I certainly appreciate Mike Mamula always being there for me to ask that first question on Clubhouse. Uh, and then tonight, 8.30 p.m., check out the world's first late night entrepreneur show with the biggest names. Billionaires, millionaires, entrepreneurs, celebrities, athletes, entertainers, everyone from Ja Rule to Sadhguru to Rob Deerdeck to, you know, Paulo Ono, Marshall Falk, Danica Patrick. John uh, Hennessy. John Hennessey, yeah. I mean, there's so many that, like Jim Quick. I always forget Jim, Jim Quick, <laughs> right? I mean, there is uh, Jack Canfield, right? Yeah, Chicken's yeah. half a billion books. Um, anyway, come join us. You'll love it. If you miss it, it'll be on the podcast as well. My great co-host will be there, and uh, we appreciate you. But meanwhile, in 12 minutes, I hope everyone joins us today. And one last special shout-out. I'm not sure she's still here, uh, but happy birthday, Colleen, the president of Dave Meltzer Enterprises. Uh, she is an incredible uh, friend, uh, incredible leader, and uh, just a, an amazing person. She's the glue of my company everyone uh, appreciates you love you enjoy your birthday we will miss you but we know 
you'll be raging and raving in Colorado with the rest of the crazies having a much better time than us at our launch party. But uh, Mikey Momoa will fill your shoes today. We yes. love you. Happy, happy birthday. Send your wishes out to Colleen. Happy birthday, Colleen. She's, she, she's on. She thank you. Happy birthday, Colleen. All righty, boys. Thank you so much. I'll see you in 11 minutes. Take care. Bye, Matt, and your shitty shirt. <laughs>